0: So uh, a, few, a few weeks ago, we began this conversation uh, about this weird and fantastic and challenging book uh, called Genesis, and, and I talked about origin stories and how our world is obsessed with origin stories these days, as exemplified in uh, the Marvel universe. And, uh, and my wife and I recently watched Avengers Endgame, which is the final more or less, kind of the final chapter of a whole series of films, over 20 films, that are all superhero films. And, and uh, I mean, I have some, some challenges with, with this thing that we call the myth of redemptive violence, where violence, when it's the good guys, is celebrated, um, and it's okay, and that seems to make everything right, even though the cycle just continues and continues and continues. So I have critiques, but that makes me a bit of a buzzkill at a party. So <laughs> let's just... Let's just say that the movies themselves were incredibly entertaining and, uh, and they were really, really, really well done and we had a lot of fun with them. But because we had seen the origins of each of these main characters, because we knew how they came to be who they were, the, the movie had so much more meaning. We understood things better. We got the why. We understood what their motivations were and why it was such a big deal when they had moments of sacrifice or selflessness or transformation because we had seen where the journey started. So, so it's really cool to be able to experience the origin story because it informs how we see the final chapters. But when you watch an origin story, when you find out how a superhero began, for example, you don't, uh, you, you don't want to end there. And usually, uh, if if we're talking about the way the film universe works, it never does end there. The origin story is never the last thing. So first you become familiar with the character, then they want to tell the story, but then you know, you want to find out now that you know so much, you want to find out what the final chapter is. Because what what you realize is that even though the beginning is important, the beginning does not determine the end. The beginning is incredibly important, but it doesn't determine what's going to happen you got to watch to find out what's going to happen you got to read further so to speak and and the same then of course is true because the past never determines but it illuminates the future and it's true in the story of genesis with this kind of ancient wonderful uncomfortable weird and valuable book we have uh, so, so we can't end in Genesis without looking toward the end game in a new light. Now, we've talked in the past couple weeks that, um, that when you really dig into the story of Genesis, see if this is still alive, alright. When you really dig into the story of Genesis, you find that the authors and the early Hebrews were not uh, primarily concerned with the when and how, okay? What they were concerned with was the why and the by whom, So, so the, the early writers, and we tend to flip this around. We tend to, to minimize the why of Genesis and the by whom, and we tend to maximize all of the, the nitty-gritty details. Um, and, and we tend to have all of this controversy about about how literal we should take this and how much the story of Genesis bucks up against what, what we might learn in the scientific world and, and what's, what's to be accepted as exact and what's to be understood as metaphorical or, or allegorical and is there truth in both of those possibilities and all this and that. And that's all well and good, but the point is that anybody who decides that that's the hill that they're going to die on is missing the point on either direction. Because what Genesis is trying to communicate to us is what is the nature and character of God and what is the nature and character with God, of God's relationship with people, okay? And so, so when we looked at that, we started to use this theme of the idea that words create worlds. That the, the origin story in the book of creation was actually set up and against other stories of how the gods created the world in ancient Babylon. And our story is radical because it doesn't begin with warfare, with the gods warring against each other, ripping each other apart. One's body forms the earth, one's body, the other half of the body forms the skies. This was the stories, but not ours. So ours starts with a cosmic act, not of violence, but of beauty and creativity and purpose. And then humans emerge from that. So what words in the last two weeks, and this is just an important recap for everybody, uh, but it's going to be quick. So what words then uh, do create worlds? Because if God creates, if God speaks words, and those words then shape our world. And it's the words of creation, of goodness. We talked about two words last week, or the last two weeks. One word was partnership. Oh, man. So I love Aspira, but they've been using my markers. And they're all empty, and I wrote them a really kind note. Ah All right. Let's see. Unbelievable. All right. So let's just do this, and we'll go back to purple. Sorry, friends. OK. So the two words that we talked about, the first one was partnership, and how uh, God speaks partnership to people from the beginning. From the beginning, the design was that God and people would work together in relationship. Not just to hang out together, but to accomplish things. To, to change the earth. To continue to work the earth and develop it into God's ultimate purposes. And then we talked about redemption. That that was another word th- that we see throughout the early chapters of Genesis that creates worlds. And even in the weird moments of Adam and Eve messing up. Even when they... they they choose selfishness, they choose separation, and they realize that they're naked and they, they cover themselves with leaves. God's action is to make skin, fur, clothing for them. That's God's response. And it's also to protect them, we'll talk about that later, from making even more destructive attitudes by eating from the tree of life now that they're in this new state. But, but so the point is that even in the midst of uncomfortable stories, there is redemption. And, and the last story that we kind of ended with was Noah. Which is, again, a weird and very uncomfortable story if we read it through a modern sensibility. Because God looks at this human project and he says, this is not working. People have turned to violence and, and corruption and they are killing each other. And so God says, I, I think I'm just going to, I want to start again. And there's this movement of God... In the beginning of Genesis, God holds back the waters. And, it's, and the story goes that God essentially releases the waters. That, that, that water is always chaos in Hebrew culture. Water is always chaos. And so, so the chaos that God has been making order from, he just says, I, humans are making their own chaos, and it's so bad that they're not even reflecting my image anymore. But even in the midst of that, God chooses Noah and his family and says, I'm not going to give up on people totally. Now, there's plenty to be uncomfortable with in the Noah story, but the importance of why the story was told was because of that redemption, okay? So that's where we come, and at the end of that story, God does what, the first thing that happens four other times, or three other times in the Old Testament, and he forms uh, a covenant with Noah, okay? And so at the end of all of this, God looks at Noah and he says, you know what, I'm go- a covenant was a promise from God and a commitment from his covenant partner, okay? Okay? So God says at the beginning, I am going to promise you that destruction like this will never ever occur on the earth again. That the earth will be a safe and good place in a new way. Thank you so much, Phil. You're the man. Um, so the earth is going to be a safe place from total destruction, at least. And what, what is required of people? This is the really interesting thing. Absolutely nothing. So in the first covenant that God makes, the, the human part isn't even there. It's as if God's saying, I know you're going to screw this up, but I'm just making you this promise that, that, that destruction will never reign, not fully ever again. And so the rest of the story, we begin to see God attempting to continue to work with people to continue to be good on that covenant. And there's three more covenants and I can't do it in two minutes, but the brilliant people at the Bible Project can. And so I'm just going to let them tell it.
1: The next time we see God make a covenant is with a man named Abraham. God chooses him, promises to bless him, give him a large family, lots of land where they can flourish. And in return, God asks Abraham to trust him and train up his family to do what is right and just. And the whole reason for this covenant is God says that somehow he's going to bring his blessing to all families of the world through this one family. So that's Abraham. The next time we see God make a covenant is when Abraham's family grows into the tribe of Israel. And this covenant is with the whole tribe. God asks them to obey a set of laws, which are these guidelines for living well as a community of God's partners. And if they do this, then God promises to bless them and that they will become a people who then represent him to the rest of humanity. That's the covenant with Israel. The last covenant is with King David. Yeah, the tribe of Israel has become this large nation ruled by David. And God asked David and his descendants to partner with him by leading Israel in obeying the laws and doing what is right and just. And God promises that one day, one of David's sons will come and extend God's kingdom of peace and blessing over all the nations. So those are the four covenants that God makes in order to restore his partnership with the whole world. But here's what happens. Israel breaks the covenant. They worship other gods, they allow horrible injustice, and so they lose their land and are forced off into exile. So it seems hopeless. But during this time, Israel's prophets talked about a day when God would restore these covenants in spite of Israel's failure, somehow. Yeah, they called it the new covenant. And this is actually what's so interesting about Jesus is that he's introduced into this story as the one who fulfills all of these covenant relationships. We're told that he's from the family of Abraham and so he will bring the blessings of that family to the whole world. We're told that he's the faithful Israelite who was able to truly obey the law. And we're told that he's the king from the line of David. And so he goes about extending God's kingdom of justice and peace to all. that's really remarkable for one guy. Yeah, and what it highlights is perhaps the most surprising claim of all made about this man, that Jesus is no mere human, but rather God become human. And God did this in order to be that faithful covenant partner that we are all made to be, but have failed to be.
0: So you can see how significant uh, this, this story is by understanding. We can't just hop from Genesis to the New Testament without telling, at least in those few moments, the story of God's work in the midst. But, but none of that probably is, is shocking to you. Jesus changes God's project with humanity on a fundamental level, right? Uh, the, the key here is that God never gave up on his hope for what humanity would become and how it could be expressed in the world. But so the hope of partnership never gets fully experienced. The hope of redemption never gets fully experienced even though God continues to try to faithfully reach out. So Jesus does something that seems impossible. He lives this human life completely faithfully. And then he dies as a human completely faithfully. And on this weird mystical level, okay, on on some some way that we is beyond our words and we've tried so hard to explain this you know, but, but there's, there's a mystical element here. That action of Jesus' death breaks the power of the things that have separated people. Remember sin, the original thing that Adam and Eve, that, that the whole story kind of is founded on in, in Genesis 3. The, sin simply means separation. It doesn't mean doing wrong. Doing wrong always moves us away from God. But the word sin is an archery term, means miss the mark. And so it's, the mark is where we're intended to be with God. It's not getting it right, it's being present, it's connection. So sin is separation. And so what Jesus does that is so significant is he maintains ultimate connection throughout his entire life with the Father. And that looks like obedience and it looks like love and it looks like faithfulness. He represents God perfectly in the partnership that was originally intended for. And, and so, so the, the reason that this story gets told in such a unique way is that the things that have been assumed since the origin story here no longer determine the outcome. The past does not determine the future in the story of the Hebrew people illuminated by Jesus. So something cool happens in the New Testament then. And what ends up happening in the New Testament is that the New Testament writers, they see the Jesus story in light of the book of Genesis. All right, They see the Jesus story in light of the book of Genesis and they use it to explain the hope of life with God. Grace, salvation, salvation. Uh, goodness by suggesting that the way things are has now changed fundamentally. So this takes us to comments like what Paul makes in Romans 5. And so in Romans 5, Paul is trying to figure out how to communicate the world of Jesus. And he says, oh, you know, here's a great way to do it. I'm going to contrast it with the story of Genesis. He said, for Adam's sin led to condemnation, led to to separation, led to a, a sense of hopelessness, right? But God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. So, so the, the point, okay, is that we understood the world in one way based on the origin story but now we are starting to understand the world in a different way because something has changed. There is this idea that the era of Adam is starting to be gone and the era of Jesus, the new human era, has begun. All right, so this is why John the Evangelizer, the guy who wrote the book of John, um, this is why he, when he wants to tell the story of Jesus, the language that he uses is to write a creation story, right? Right? So when when John, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but when John starts his story, he says, in the beginning, only the second time in the entire Bible that that phrase is used, in the beginning, because he wants everybody to think, what is John doing telling a creation story? What John is doing is helping us understand that there was a way that things were. But now there is a new story that is unfolding that is going to change everything. And so through the book of John, this is so cool, Jesus plays the originator, the one who is there at the beginning, but also the main character, the human, <laughs> that God creates and forms, even though Jesus is not created, although God becomes, which is a beautiful word. It's the only time God becomes anything. When it says the word became flesh, it's a word of complete transformation. God becomes something new out of his love for people. It's really, really beautiful. Very interesting word study, but we won't go into it. Uh, so, So what ends up happening then in the book of John is that there is seven moments of Jesus. They're called signs, and John identifies each one of them. There are seven moments of Jesus doing something radical and crazy that makes the world new. There are seven moments of God creating a new world. Are you with me? Okay? It's really, really cool. And then Jesus, in John 20, 20, he breathes onto his disciples, And gives them his spirit. Spirit, literally, life breath. Are we seeing all of this? See how brilliant this is of John? So Jesus Jesus is literally the new creator of, of something brand new. And just like God breathes life into the dust and creates Adam and Eve. This is the same idea of Jesus breathing life into his disciples. At the end of his story. And then Jesus dies. At the end of seven days. Or at the end of seven moments. And then Jesus rises. And it's the eighth wonder of John's world. It's the eighth sign. It is the first moment of the new world. So it's not a shocker that when the New Testament writers are writing, what they look at is Jesus being a new humanity. Literally humanity 2.0. And this has significant implications for us. Really, really significant implications. Because it's, it's not just that, it, that Jesus has done what no one else has done before. Jesus came and he, and he did something that no one since Adam or before could do. He broke the cycle of death and sin and disconnection, right? So, so, so he does that. But when he does that, um, he, he's not just doing something that we couldn't do. He's doing something that changes us fundamentally. Because in the story, we are all descendants of Adam in the origin story. But in the new story, we're descendants of the lineage of Jesus. And so here's, here's what that looks like. It's, it's, it's really cool. Um, obviously, the first thing is the internal world. Therefore, and the way they use this, this example, when Jesus invites people to follow him, come and follow me, come and join with me, He's inviting them into an experience of unity, okay? And so the phrase that the New Testament uses for this is being in Christ. That means we are a part of this journey of trusting Jesus, the way of Jesus, experiencing the gift of the Spirit of Jesus. So Paul's talking about that. It says, now there's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ, because through Jesus Christ, the law of the Spirit has set you free from the law of sin and death, okay? So there was a law that was at work that you couldn't, that, that you broke every time you tried. Or at least a law that you couldn't break in, in this way of doing it. When it's the law of sin and death. But now there's a new law and you are therefore recipients of this new code of conduct. This new law and that new law is, hey, here's the, here's the legal thing. You've been made right. You get the spirit. That's the law. That's the new law. It's all about grace. Okay. So it's a big part of it. Jesus does what humans can't. But here's the thing. When we understand that there is this movement that Jesus is not just the anti-Adam but the second Adam, then we begin to see ourselves as descendants of the new Adam. All right? And so what does Paul talk about when Paul decides to talk not just about Jesus but about Christians, about those who follow Jesus? They are called a new creation. So there's this new story. So what we see... In 2 Corinthians 5.17 is that if anyone is in Christ, Paul says, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. That used to, in, before we did a little bit better scholarship, the first way that we interpreted that, and if some of you grew up in the, maybe the King James um, translation or something like that, you would notice that it used to be, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is or they are a new creation. But there's actually no, um, no pronoun there. And so as we've looked at it, the reality is if anyone is in Christ, there's a new creation that they're a part of. It's not just them. The whole world has been redeemed in a new way, and they look at it, and they are a part of it. So yes, they are a new creation, but so is everything around them. And here's here's why that's really important. Look what he uses to set that up um, in, in verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. He's not just talking about what happens in here. He's saying now that there's a new creation, we can't look at the world the same way. It's about others. Us being a part of the new humanity is about how we look at others, not just how we understand our own standing. Jesus changes the lens that we look through. People are no longer simply full of sin and evil. Instead, they are deserving of compassion and dignity. They're no longer hopelessly lost. Instead, they are images of God with the constant possibility of redemption. This is what happens when we don't regard anyone from a worldly point of view anymore. So this is the new humanity in Christ. Personal and interpersonal. Alright? And, and, and so, so the, the coolest thing about this new humanity is that it begins to hit on these things that were the original intent. And all of a sudden, we find uh, that we we are actually being enabled to accomplish what we never could before. Here's here's what I mean. This is is my favorite stuff in Genesis. All right. So, check out what they're worried about in Genesis 3. Okay? When, When Adam and Eve sin, the comment is, Now the man has become like us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat forever. Dwayne said this isn't, last week Duane was, was great about this. He said this isn't about God being like jealous. This is about saying that in their current state of, of having full freedom to pick between good and evil, they can't possibly be given the gift of life forever because it will destroy them. And so, so they're protected from eating from the tree of life in that current state. So the concern is that man will become like us. That's the concern, right, in the story of Genesis. So check this out. 1 John 4, we become like Jesus in the world. That's the promise. The same thing that was the concern once, they will become like us. John writes and he says, here's how we have confidence. In this world, we are like Jesus. What a beautiful glimpse of the story, right? In Romans 12, we're told not to conform to the pattern of the world, but that if we are having our mindset on God, we can actually figure out the difference between good and evil. We can discern what God's will actually is. Instead of the idea of now that he knows good and evil, it's going to be disastrous, it's the exact opposite. Now that he's got the gift and the presence of the Spirit, he will be able, she will be able to discern what God's heart is. Check this stuff out. It goes on and on. John 14. Whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they'll do even greater things. The man has now become like us. This is a problem. And the new new humanity? People are going to become like us. How beautiful. That's the contrast that we get. So good over and over. And finally in John 6. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. So do you see what we have here? <laughs> we have a complete reversal of all of the concerns of Genesis. All the things that, that in the book of Genesis is like, Oh no, humanity's going the wrong way. They're becoming like us. They're trying to do this. They're trying to do that. But they're going to screw it all up. And instead... In Jesus, in the new humanity, we are encouraged to do all of those things. In the Tower of Babel, there's this great story in Genesis 11. Really weird, by the way. Super weird. But, um, but good story. And, and the concern, again, when all these people band together, the concern is that if as one people, speaking the same language, they've begun to do this, they're building a tower to reach to the heavens. To make a name for themselves. Okay, And if they want to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. That's the concern. Okay? So let us go down and confuse their language so they won't understand each other. So people were starting to band together, completely separate from a connection with God, and saying, we want to be impressive. We want to be like God. And God, again, sounds weirdly jealous if we read it in, in a certain way. Let's go confuse them. The idea is, if they try to accomplish things together, separate from relationship with God, they will destroy the earth. And so what do we get to compare it with? Check this out! Jesus talking, hey, by the way, nothing will be impossible for you if you have faith. The hope is that nothing is impossible for them. The fear was that nothing would be impossible for them. Do you see this reversal? It's beautiful, and it continues to happen. What about in Acts 2? Everybody's filled with the Holy Spirit when the the Spirit is given, and they speak in other tongues as the Spirit enables. It is literally the anti babel moment. God undoes Babel. At Pentecost. He says, I will do a, a powerful work to bring people together for my purposes. And so they say, how is it all these people are speaking in our language? It's this awesome moment where the Spirit gives translation where there was not translation before. In Babel, the fear is that they will all understand each other and they will do wickedness and evil because they're working together. And in the book of Acts, Jesus does the miracle to make them be able to work together. Because that's what God's hope is. It's just awesome. I love this stuff. I love this stuff. Okay. Um, So, what else do we need to know? Um, We need to know that this is about being empowered, friends. Um, In Christ, you have all the power in the world because you'll be using it for the powerless and for the good of all humanity because you're the new humans this is why we don't sit around and look at our origin story and say hey this is just the way things are sin is in the world and it's broken and messed up and hey that's the way it is nope nope we acknowledge that we have an Adam lineage somewhere in our background but we also acknowledge that now While we find identity in Jesus, that's where our lineage is. So we live in that hope of the new humanity, even as it's still coming to pass and as it will one day come in fullness. Jesus has been healing and is healing all of it. And so we work toward the same story. So the culmination of this origin story is about being empowered. And this is, again, where it gets mystical and weird for us. Okay? Um, We we believe that because of Jesus, things are now possible for us that were not possible before because we've been set free from the natural way of doing things, which is selfishly and, and apart from God. But now in Jesus, new things are possible. Big things. <laughs> we've got to claim that. Uh, I sound like a preacher on TV. Um, you know, like, name it and claim it and, and send in your tithes and you'll get a year's worth of me reading Together for Goods in an audiobook. That's our weekly newsletter. Um, So, no. uh, But seriously, though, um, seriously, we might need a little more Pentecostal influence once in a while. For those of us who have done so much deconstruction, we need to have a little faith in the fact that Jesus is at work to make the world good and empowering us to play a role in that. Like, we need to have a little faith, people. We need to take steps forward to trust that. Uh, The the story says, we were in Adam, right? Right? But now we are in Christ. So my question is, why do we downplay that so much? Why do we act like we are so weak and spiritless so much of the time? I'm not convinced I know why. Uh, so in in the 1940s, the world record for the, the mile stood at just over four minutes. And, and many people thought that that was the impossible barrier for a human to do. No human could ever run a mile in less than four minutes. And, um, and so it was talked about a lot. It had, it had been slowly coming down. And then for nine years, people tried to break that four-minute barrier. And nobody could. Nobody could touch it. Okay? And then um, a guy named Roger Bannister, who was later became, become Sir Roger Bannister, um, because of his accomplishment, he ran in 1956. Uh, I think it was 54 or 56. Uh, 54. He ran a 54 on May 6th. He ran a 3:59, and 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 he blew people's minds away. Six months later, another gentleman broke the world record and brought it down to 3:57. Within a year, 16 people had broken the four-minute barrier. I told you I was a cross country coach. Every single day at cross country practice, I tell my middle schoolers that you are more capable than you ever could imagine. You are stronger than you realize. I got an email from a parent the other day. It was the coolest email. She said, I just want to let you know, this is a cool thing, but my daughter's confidence has skyrocketed since she started running cross-country. Who knew that cross-country could be a confidence booster for people? But it was, it was beautiful to hear. And, and, and the, the point that I share about all of that is that we, are, we, we forget that we're the new humanity, that sub-four-minute miles are now the new norm, that we should, we are, you can forgive. It's possible. Because the Spirit's empowering you. You can have self control in those areas that continue to have a grip on you because you have the Spirit of God. It's possible. Like, this is a big deal. You can love your enemies. You can be more generous with your life and your time and your energy and your resources. You can care for people when you feel exhausted and continue to love when you feel annoyed. You can love and be patient with your kids when you're at your end of your rope. It's all possible. You can have meaningful conversations with people who infuriate you with their views. Because God is powerful and you are part of a new humanity. We've got to start to grasp this because sometimes we live so small and all we talk about is weakness. And I'm not into such a disconnected world of victorious living that we don't acknowledge the pain that Jess brought up and just the difficulty of day to day to day. But we have to remember that the story that we've been given is that the ending is not the same as the beginning. And we need to embrace that and allow it to to bring us to the fullness of love in every single way. Um, Yeah. The power of Genesis, to to kind of wrap things up, uh, said a, a man named Brian, author named Brian McLaren once, he said the power of Genesis isn't simply that it happened, it's that it happens over and over again with you and with me. Somehow we sense that we're created in God's image, but we also sense that that knowledge isn't enough for us to remain faithful to that image, right? We become drunk on the wine of self-gratification and one-upmanship, and we feel corrupted. We get that somewhere deep within us, and the pain and the heartache of the world, that corrupts us too. And we can't help but feel distance between us and our creator. But the story of Genesis keeps moving on toward the redemption of the original hope of partnership and making things right. And we get that the wor- that the entire earth maybe is even crying out for redemption. And Jesus enters into that longing and gives us life in the truest way. And we're given eyes to see the pain in our world and do something about it. We're given assurance of the life that conquers death. That we taste in our mouth every time that we see selfishness and violence and sin. So we take the story of Genesis exactly as it is. A beginning and not an end. Because Jesus was coming, and Jesus has come, and Jesus will come again. And we are a part of the new humanity, so let's live like it. God, make it so with us. Amen.